Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 is what we, what we will be considering this morning. This is the word of the Lord. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. And from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Saints, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true, and that your word is eternal, that it will never change because your word is from you. You, Lord, like your word, will never change. It stands forever. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see and understand and believe your living word, for it comes from the living and true God. I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated, saints. <clears throat> Well, I do again welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath. It is wonderful to be with you all as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. When we last considered Revelation, we examined the breaking of the fifth and the sixth seal by the triumphant Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. At the breaking of the fifth seal, the souls who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained, they cry out with a loud voice. In chapter 6 and verse 10, How long, O Lord, they cry, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The souls of those who have been slain were condemned on earth. They were condemned on earth by an earthly judge who condemned them in the courts of earth as being guilty. But as they are in the presence of the judge of all of the earth, their earthly verdict is overturned, and God pronounces them with their white robes justified, innocent of any wrongdoing. God declares that they are righteous before him. And in terms of the amount of time, they ask the question, how long? In terms of the amount of time that they were to wait for final justice from the Holy One, the Lord says that they should rest a little while longer. But listen to what he says, until the number of their fellow servants and the brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, was completed also. God says, wait a little while until the number is complete. We said last week that men are counting years and months and days, and yet... God is counting sheep. 
Men are counting years and months and days until the end. And God is saying, not until every last one is brought into my fold will the end come. He is unwilling that any should perish. But he is patient with all of those whom he has died for until they come into his fold. The Lamb then breaks the sixth seal and unleashes devastation upon the earth. Now, the devastation is described as touching the seven uh, elements of creation in order to communicate that the whole of creation is utterly devastated by the breaking of this seal. This seal also touches the seven categories of men, communicating that, that no one in all of humanity will be able to escape the great day of judgment of the Lord. There are a few things, though, saints, that I would like us to take note of as we move forward. First, a reminder. The reminder is this. A revelation is not meant to be understood in chronological order. Revelation is not meant to be understood chronologically. Uh, Revelation is not a straight line. Therefore, when you read Revelation, do not think of it as and then and then and then in a chronological manner. Right? This will be shown true in the seventh chapter, I hope. In this chapter, theologians have noted that there is a a type of, in chapter seven, there's a type of cycling back to the time before the sixth seal, or before the four seals in the sixth chapter. We'll, We'll get to this in a moment. The seals where the four horsemen were unleashed in chapter six, chapter seven is telling us what happens before that. If that doesn't make sense, Lord willing and will as we press forward. You will remember that Christ employs these four writers, both for judgment upon the wicked and for the refining of faith upon the righteous. Which ultimately culminates in the consummation, but also the advancement of the kingdom. At the end of the sixth chapter, there is utter devastation. But when we come to the seventh chapter, we are told that there are four angels. And these four angels are apparently holding back destruction. That's interesting. Because in chapter 6, we read at the very end, there's utter destruction. And then in chapter 7, we read, there's a holding back of destruction. This may cause confusion. But only if you understand Revelation to be understood chronologically. If you understand that it's not to be seen in a straight line, then you understand that what John is doing is he is communicating to us the things that take place Prior to chapter 6. Hopefully this will all make sense as we move forward. More to come on that. The second thing that I'd like to take note of is this. At the end of chapter 6, there's a great question that is asked. The great question that is asked in chapter 6 is found in verse 17. It says this. The question is this. For the great day of their... Uh, him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the question. And who is able to stand? The sixth chapter ends with a question. Who is able to stand? This question ends the chapter, but it does not end the explanation of the effects of the unleashing of the sixth seal. All that we see in the seventh chapter is the effects or the results of the breaking of the sixth seal, but we don't leave chapter six behind because chapter seven is taking us to the events prior to chapter six. And we'll get to that in a moment. So with that said, let us consider If you're taking notes and if you have a title that you'd like to have, the title of of this will be, Who Was Able to Stand? Let's deal with these in three points. Number one, the interlude. The interlude. Verses one through three. Chapter seven begins with the phrase, after this. Now, someone may say, you've said this book is not to be taken uh, chronologically, in, in this kind of straight line order, but we keep seeing these kinds of phrases that seem to imply otherwise. I will grant you that. I will grant that it seems to imply a chronological order, but it is not. 
John is not saying that the events in chapter 7 take place after the events in chapter 6 with the phrase after this or and then. Rather, he is, he is saying that he has received this vision after the previous vision, but not that it's meant to be taking, taken in a chronological order. He simply received one vision and now he's received another vision. But the next vision that he receives, which is the one in chapter 7, is explaining the vision before chapter, before his previous vision. Did I just confuse you completely? I hope not. This would seem like it would therefore mean that it is meant to come next. But the vision actually tells us what has taken place already. Let's see if we can make sense. I alluded to this in our introduction, but John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is answering a question in chapter 7 that has come from chapter 6. Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? Also another question. How long, O Lord? And another answer until the full number is brought in. All of these questions from chapter 6 are being answered in chapter 7. The Lord will use John to make the answers known. Who is able to stand in the day of the Lord? John then takes us, or the Lord takes John, who then takes us back to the four horsemen. You remember those four riders who have been unleashed upon the earth. And the Lord shows John who is able to stand when they come. And the Lord shows us how they are able to stand. Notice verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the, of the earth. Four corners, four is always meant to uh, mean kind of the entirety, the four, the world. Holding back the four, listen to this, the four winds. Note that. The four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. The four winds, they find their reference in Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 5. And here... They are also a callback to the sixth chapter of Revelation of the four horsemen who ride in order to execute judgment, divine judgment upon the earth. The four winds are the four horsemen. The four winds are the four horsemen. But as they ride, the Lord employs four angels to hold back. The four horsemen's devastation. Are you with me? They are commissioned by God, both to execute judgment, but they are restrained by God from utterly destroying the earth, which may cause us to ask why. Oh, what's the purpose of the restraint? And why is it that God seems to decree two conflicting things? In one instance, God is decreeing four to go forth in destruction. And in another instance, God is decreeing four to hold back destruction. Well, let's deal with that first. It's important for you, saints, and I to know that there is never at any time any conflict in God. God is never confused. God is never conflicted. And there are also no contradictions in God's word. God can, can decree two opposite things without there being any conflict within or contradiction within God or his decree. God has decreed judgment upon the earth, but judgment will not be executed until the full number of the elect are brought in. That's the way you make sense of it. And whether we read it that way or not, that is meant to be the understanding. If ever we believe that there is a contradiction or conflict in God's word or in God, the conflict is not in God's word, nor is it in God's in God himself. The conflict and contradiction is within us. There's not something wrong with God. There's something wrong with us. Now, concerning the reason for the restraint, it's the, the hypothetical question. Is God so concerned about the welfare of the earth, the sea and the trees? Don't harm the sea or the trees or the earth that he would restrain four winds or the four horsemen from destruction. Is he does he care about the trees that much? Does God care about the ocean and, and the earth that much that he would not allow devastation to overtake the earth? Because he loves the earth so much. Remember, uh, four is meant to represent the entirety of the world. 
In one sense, no. God does not care. Because the world will be devastated. The world will be destroyed. But in another sense, yes. Why does God care about the earth in the other sense? He gives us the answer in verse 2. I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to him, or to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. What? Why not? Does God love the ocean and the trees and the, and, and the earth so much that he doesn't want to harm them? Here's the answer, verse 3. It's because of what's in the earth. Until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. The care of God is not necessarily about the earth and the trees and the sea, but rather the care of God is because of those who dwell on the earth. His elect, those who he has called his bondservants who have not yet been sealed, but who will be sealed. There will not be allowed devastation and destruction until God seals all those who are his. That's good news, isn't it? God is not willing that any should perish. God is not willing that any of those who belong to him will be lost. The angel ascends or rises from the east and he has the seal from God, meaning he has been given the authority from God, the task from God to announce grace. Grace to the elect. For the earth will not be harmed or destroyed until they are sealed. And that is good gospel news. All those who belong to God, the grace of God will be communicated to them. And if they belong to God, they will be brought into his fold. They will not be destroyed. They will not be lost. The reason why the Lord restrains the four horsemen who bring the four winds of devastation to the earth is so that the whole number of God's people may be gathered. The question came from the saints, how long, O Lord? And the answer was, not until all of the number, all until, not until the full number of the saints are brought in. And now the Lord restrains final and utter devastation and judgment because he is still drawing his sheep into his fold. Praise God for that. Praise God that those who are on our list of those and we are praying for that God would stay, would save, some of those may be, may be belonging to God. Some of those may be those that God is still putting his seal upon. And we're praying for that, aren't we? We're praying that God would draw them in. We're praying that they would not be lost. As God is promising this, that if they are his, they will not be lost. The Lord places his seal on his people. The seal is not giving, given, it's not given during that final judgment. It's given before. There are some who argue that there is a great tribulation that lasts seven years. And during that seven years, and only that seven year period, which is sometime in the future, then people will be saved. Then, then uh, an enormous amount of people will be saved. And here the Lord explains that all of the saints, those who are his, that they are... They are sealed before the great day of the Lord, not after the great day of the Lord. Why? The Lord puts his seal on those who are his so that they might be able to stand in the midst of tribulation. Not after tribulation. In Ezekiel chapter 9, the prophet receives a vision from an angel who marks all true believers and spares them from destruction. It was a looking forward to the day when the judgment of God would fall on Babylon and the unfaithful of Israel. But the righteous would be spared because they had been sealed by God. You remember in Exodus, don't you, when God spared the lives of those who by faith spread the blood of the lamb over their doorposts when God came to judge the nation of Israel. It was a type of seal. In those instances, though, the point was physical protection. In Revelation here, spiritual protection is in view. All those who belong to God will not be lost. Your soul will not be lost. What is uppermost in the mind of John by the Spirit of God is that the faith of the elect, because of this seal, would keep them, would protect them, would preserve them as they experience tribulation. 
as they experience suffering, because they have been sealed by God, they will not be lost. As we have already discussed, the believer is not spared from suffering, are we? In this life, we will suffer many griefs. We will suffer sorrow, sickness, poverty, oppression, slander, and death. And yet, it is through many trials that we enter the kingdom of God. They have been sealed by God. Uh, the sealing of God. You may ask, well, what is this seal? Is it a physical mark? Is it something that's going to be written on our forehead and, and on our hand, as it were? What is this seal? Well, the seal has a has two equal meanings. Number one, the Apostle Paul identifies this seal as being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 1.13 When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters, when our darkened hearts were awakened to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we were endowed, we were sealed with the precious and promised Holy Spirit of God. We were filled with the presence of God. That, that's the one sense of being sealed. But it's not physical, it's spiritual, isn't it? To be sealed also has a sense of being authenticated. It's being identified, being authenticated, so that your ownership is recognized. In the ancient world, a seal was used to uh, identify who belonged to a master. It was uh, used as a, a seal, an object belonging to a master that would, that would seal its slave. This would communicate that this slave belonged to someone else. They were sealed. The seal not only identified ownership, but also authentication. It, it was a sign of protection if you had this seal. This person was not to be harmed because they belonged to someone else. The point's simple. The seal that God gives us is not a physical one. It's a spiritual one. Just in case you're wondering... As is the mark of the beast. It will not be and it is not a physical mark. It is a spiritual mark. Just as the mark of those who are elect is spiritual. The mark of those who are not elect is spiritual. Not physical. And what is it? The saints are empowered to persevere through tribulation. The genuineness of their profession of faith is authenticated as they show that they truly belong to God as they endure. They have shown that they have been sealed by God. Our confession of faith in Christ alone, it identifies you as belonging to Christ. When you say, in Christ alone I confess my faith, you're identified as being in Christ. But is that all you need to do? Do you simply need to say, I believe in Jesus? Well, it's one aspect of it, isn't it? But it's not all of it. We confess that we have been united to Christ in his person and work. We confess that Christ has lived, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, that Christ will return. We confess all these things. And our preservation through tribulation, the fruit that comes out of our lives, long-suffering, patience, faithfulness, that authenticates our confession. That we have been sealed. In the one sense, confessing authenticates you. In another sense, enduring and fruit authenticates you. One identifies, another authenticates. When we endure and persevere through sore providences and difficult trials, not abandoning our faith, holding fast to Christ, the authenticity of our faith is proven as being genuine. The Apostle Peter said that our trials, they have a kind of refining and authenticating effect on the believer. When trials come, when tribulation comes, it serves to fortify our faith and also verify our faith. Are you who you say you are? Most of the time, you know who you say you know that you are who you say you are when trouble comes. Just like your friends, right? You know who are your true friends when trouble comes. 
Well, you know that you are a friend of Christ when trouble comes and you hold fast to Christ. When you go to the bank and you set up an account and you are asked to give two forms of identification, you walk in, you I know my name, I know who I am. You know where you're from, you know when you were born. But they want proof. Proof in order for you to verify that you are who you say you are. In the world, it's these little cards. In the kingdom of God, it's persevering through suffering. And in the process, not forsaking Christ. That's your form of identification and authentication. Authenticity. Through many sufferings, we will enter the kingdom of God. For those of you who are in Christ, you've been promised that you will not be lost. What if I'm not strong enough? What if I'm not strong enough to endure suffering? Uh, what if, what if I'm not, what if I'm not strong enough to endure tribulation and trial? What, what if I'm not strong enough if it gets worse? You know what's going on in Canada? Preachers are being barred from preaching about a man being married to a woman as God's model for marriage. You are not allowed to preach that in Canada. You will be fined and you could even be imprisoned for doing so. What if it gets worse? What if that happens here? What if I'm not strong enough? Let me encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters. You are not strong enough. On your own, by yourself, you are not strong enough. Let me make this abundantly clear. Our identity, our authenticity is a work of God, the Holy Spirit. This is God's work. He is working in you both to will and to do. He identifies us. He authenticates us. And he has promised that he will protect us. Come what may. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And when we experience suffering. Let us by the help of the Holy Spirit. Let us view suffering through the correct lens. Speaking to one of the brothers the other day. About God being the author of evil. One of the statements that was agreed upon was this. That when we experience so-called devastation, we call it evil. But from God's perspective, it's judgment. It's good. We say it's, it's terrible. But God says this is just. We call it wicked and God calls it righteous. And similarly, when we are experiencing suffering... We must not view it from only our vantage point. That the corrupted image bearer who is putting sin to death. We must see all that we experience as being for our benefit and for our being prepared. Our benefit in being uh, formed in Christ's likeness and our being prepared for glory. Spurgeon said... It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill is no ill to him, but only good in mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. <laughs> Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. Oh, how mysterious from our vantage point it is. When we experience trials of many kind, but know this, they are producing in you an eternal weight of glory. Oh, how mysterious they are. As Paul would say, oh, the depths huh, of the riches. And yet in our flesh, we experience many sufferings, but they are for our good. You have a divine promise that you will not be lost when the four winds blow upon this world or your world. You have a divine promise that you will not be abandoned. You have a divine promise that the one who has you in his hand will never allow you to be snatched out of his hand. Notice that we are called bondservants. Because we have been sealed 
And God is our master. We have been branded, if you will, marked by God, if you will. His branding is our, his seal upon us. In the ancient world, it was commonplace to mark slaves on the forehead to indicate who owned them. You remember that last week, Dr. Dozal mentioned that slavery is not always a bad thing. You are slaves of Christ. You are bond servants of Christ. You've been branded, you've been marked as bond servants, slaves of the living God. Could that ever be bad? Could that ever be wrong? And we are marked on our forehead. Uh, we see the same kind of language as being marked in chapter 13 and verse and chapter 14. But it has an Old Testament reference in, uh, uh, I forget, I think, oh, Exodus chapters 36 and 38, when the seal of consecration is set upon the forehead of Aaron, as he is set apart for the priesthood. But for us, it's a spiritual mark, symbolizing that we belong to God. We've already talked about what that mark is. God has sealed his own. He will not allow the consummation of all things to take place, the judgment of the world to take place, until all of his sealed ones have been marked. Now, it's interesting. Because the devastation is coming. God will not allow it until the full number is brought in. And then follow the sequence. And then we have this mysterious number. 144,000. Let's go to our second point, 144,000. That's simply the point, 144,000. Verses uh, 4 through 8. Brothers and sisters, let us not conclude that the things that happened in chapter 6 are in the past. Let's keep this in the front of our mind. The great day of the Lord is coming, has come, who is able to stand. I do believe that this is the overall thrust of chapter 7. It's the answering of this question, who is able to stand? John sees God preserving a people so that they will be able to stand. And then John is, is given by God this infamous number, 144,000. For many of you, you have heard this number. And there's been a lot of confusion as to its meaning. I talk to a Jehovah's Witness and they will tell you that this number represents the amount of people who will be resurrected to new life and who will be allowed the privilege of living in the celestial city, the heavenly kingdom. What is probably disappointing for most Jehovah's Witnesses who live today is that in 1935, they believed that number of 144,000 had been met. Therefore, everyone after 130, after 1935 only have the hope of an earthly kingdom, not a heavenly one. Jehovah's Witness apologist Doug Batchelor, he disagrees with this. He believes, like some of us did very similarly, that 144,000 are the remnant of believing Jews who will testify on behalf of Christ before the end of all things. Both of these views are wrong, obviously. But listen to a view that you might recognize as being familiar. It's the premise, the beginning, that Israel and the church are separate. That they are different eternal entities. I wonder if you see a distinction between Israel and the church. They see much of what we have discussed as being sometime in the future. That is, all that we have discussed so far will take place in a seven-year period sometime in the future, or at any time. They also see this 144,000 as a literal number of ethnic Jews who will convert to Christ, listen to this, after the rapture. They believe that these 144,000 Jews will bear witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the final days before the final end. Now, some of us go, wow, that sounds familiar because most of us, if not all of us, grew up with that actual position. It's a dispensationalist position. This is what they believe as a fulfillment of Romans 11 in that all Israel will be, will be saved. 
Others have taught that this number is a special group of martyrs who have been protected against physical harm until they have the opportunity to witness. They will be going throughout the world. Those of you who saw Left Behind, there's a, a, a mixing of all of these views within that movie. It's important to note that nowhere in the New Testament is there any thought of preference or advantage that is granted to a Jew or Gentile during the first and second coming of Christ. So how are we to understand this 144,000 then? Well, let's make some points as we go forward so hopefully we can understand this mysterious number. The number is meant to be figurative, not literal. Since nearly every single number in the book of Revelation is figurative, the book is also not chronological. We've learned that already. So then, what are we seeing? What we are seeing in this chapter 7 is not necessarily, again, meant to take place after chapter 6. What is happening is just before chapter 6, when the four horsemen ride. 144,000 are not sealed after chapter 6, but just before chapter 6. It's the complete number. 144,000 are meant to represent all of the sealed ones of God. All of the sealed ones of God. They are meant to represent the completeness of God's people. The completeness of God's people. Well, it, it does come from the question, doesn't it? How long, O oh Lord? The Lord answers, not until the full number are brought in. Chapter 7 gives us a, 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 a figurative, symbolic number of the complete number of saints who have been brought in. Does that make sense? How many is that? It's a perfect number. It's a number that has been meant, uh, it is meant to be taken symbolically. How do we know that? Well, when we come to verse, I think, 9, we'll see that the number is one that no man can count. In chapter 7, in these 144,000, it's meant to represent a complete number. How many is that? Well, nobody can count it. That's what John sees. It's a complete number that nobody can count. Nobody but God, of course. It is likely that the 144,000 are symbolic of the number of the people of God from the Old Testament and New Testament beyond. We are New Testament people. Twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles, 144 times 10, which is meant to communicate completeness. I, there's many more mathematical problems or issues that I read in the commentaries that I'm not going to spend your minds with. Someone might protest. But this 144,000 and their tribes, is it not a Jewish list? That's an important question to ask. Is it not a Jewish list? Meaning, uh, isn't, doesn't this only refer to Jews? I see tribes. Hang with me for a moment. Notice that the first listed in the 12 tribes is which tribe? The tribe of, look at your Bibles, Judah. This is a rare occurrence. In many of the Old Testament list of the tribes, Judah is rarely listed first. But here, when God begins to talk about the completeness of his people, he lists Judah as the first tribe. Judah receives preeminence. Why? Because out of this tribe comes the Lion of Judah, the, the, the Messiah. Out of, out of this tribe... Uh, comes the one who was able to save the complete number of saints who are, are to be brought in to fulfill prophecy from Genesis chapter 49. Judah is a lion's cub and all the other tribes will bow down to him. Next is Reuben. Now I'm not going to go through all 12 of these, so hang with me. Uh, but Reuben is, is born of Leah, who is the first wife, isn't she, of Jacob. The tribe then of Dan. And Ephraim, listen to this, they're removed. They're not in this list. Because these two tribes led Israel in idolatry. And idolaters have no place in the kingdom of God. Now here's an interesting point. The next tribes mentioned are Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. Now why does that matter? What's interesting about these three tribes is they are born of concubines. They are born of slave women. They're born of secondary wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. Well, why does that matter? 
because these three tribes or these three children would be considered outsiders to the covenant community. They would be, as it were, Gentiles. And yet, here they are alongside the members of the covenant community. The children of Abraham. Manasseh, who replaced Dan. Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Uh, what is meant to be communicated by, by inserting these three non-Jew, Jewish tribes, if you will, into this so-called strictly Jewish list. Why would there be a mix of Jew and Gentile in the list of those who complete the people of God? I think you're catching on. What's a Jew? Well, what is a Jew? I wonder if you're able to answer that question. A Jew is one who is considered to be, very simply, one who is considered to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. It's not someone who's from Israel. If my children grew up, if we moved to Israel and we had more kids who were born there, they would not be considered Jews just because they're in Israel. A Jew is one who is a part of the Abrahamic covenant. Descendants of Abraham, yes, but as a result of being of Abraham, they receive certain covenantal benefits. They receive, as their connection to Abraham, the blessings of Abraham. They are a part of that covenant. These covenantal blessings were not afforded to the children of slaves, to concubines, to secondary wives. They are considered not, they are not considered benefactors of the covenant. Only the immediate children, those of the covenant, are belonging benefactors of the covenant. And yet, this supposedly strictly Jewish list includes those who would not legally be considered Jews as they would not be afforded the rights to the covenants, to the benefits of the covenant. And there they are, right in the midst of them, receiving the benefits of Abraham's covenant. Because didn't the Lord Jesus Christ say, you are not of Abraham, to those who were of Abraham. If you were of Abraham, you would believe me as Abraham did. What is the true blessing of Abraham? But what is truly taking part in the benefits of Abraham's covenant? It's not the physical land. It's the spiritual land above. What is it meant to truly be in Abraham? It's to have the faith that Abraham had. Who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You believe God. You believe in Christ. Then you are of Abraham. And you are Abraham's seed. Because you are a child of Abraham's seed. The Lord Jesus Christ. I think you're getting the point. The point is this. That in Christ there is no longer Jew or Gentile. But we are all one in Christ. The point is that a Jew is not a Jew who is one merely outwardly but inwardly. For true circumcision is not a physical mark. That identified the sons of Abraham. But true circumcision is circumcision of the heart. Man is able to circumcise the body. Only God can circumcise the heart. And God seals his children by taking hearts of stone and giving to them hearts of flesh. 144,000. Let the mystery, let the mystery be solved today. Is therefore meant to represent the church of all time who have been sealed by God and who will not be lost no matter what tribulation befall them. G.K. Beale says, if Gentile believers are clearly identified together with the 12 tribes of Israel as part of the New Jerusalem, then it is not odd that John should refer to them together with Jewish Christians as the 12 sons of Israel. You are true Israel. The Christians receive a new name. You are the new Israel of God. The church has not replaced Israel. No, brothers and sisters. The church is Israel. We are the true Israel of God. We are the sons of God. It's interesting that in verses 5 through 8, we are given a number of completeness, which may lead some to falsely think, and I might add foolishly think, that they can actually put an actual number on the elect. But all of those... Estimations fall to pieces when we come to verses 9 through 12. Third and last point. 
the innumerable number. I just love that point. I could leave it there and say goodbye. We'll see you at lunch. The innumerable number. Let us make this abundantly clear. The 144,000 and the innumerable number are not two separate groups. They are one and the same. They are one and the same. They are the restored remnant of true Israel, whose salvific security has been granted and guaranteed. Yet, they are a number because God has determined exactly who shall receive his seal of redemption. There is a number. How many? Only God knows. How many will be saved? Only God knows. From God's perspective, they are numbered. He knows every single one of his sheep. But from the perspective of man, as John sees, I, I can't even imagine. If you could see in your mind's eye an endless sea of people. Listen to this. More than the stars in the sky and more than the sands on the seashore, which is a benefit, a promise to Abraham. In all of heaven. Let that sink in for just a moment. John is given a vision of a great multitude. A number that no one can count who have been sealed by God. And we are encouraged, aren't we? You should be encouraged. If you're a Calvinist, be encouraged. It's an innumerable number. It's wonderful to know that you can tell those who oppose your stance on the biblical doctrine of, that, of predestination and election. Those who say, you're telling, you're telling me that God's only going to save some people. That only some people are going to go to heaven. You can say to them, yes. And it is an innumerable number. It is a number that no man can count. As numerous as the sands on the sea, the stars in the sky. It's good to know that the new heavens and earth, it won't be sparsely populated. There won't just be a few people there. The new creation will be filled. Filled. With all those who have been sealed from Adam, imagine from Adam to whenever the Lord returns. Of all of those who belong to him. Who are even now as we speak. And I pray through the preaching of someone somewhere. Being loosed from the sin of Adam. And being grafted into Christ. The answer to the question that we've been laboring to answer is this. Of who will be able to stand in the day of the Lord's judgment. <laughs> It's answered when John sees saints from every tribe, every, every nation, and every tongue. And what are they doing? Interesting. The chapter 6 ends. Who's able to stand? And then John sees a multitude. And what's the word he uses? Standing. John says, who's able to stand? Or, uh, those who, who are fearing the great day of the Lord. Who is able to stand in the great day of the Lord? And John sees a multitude. And they're standing. They're standing before the throne of God. They're declaring the praise and the worship of God. And they're standing. I think seven or eight times in chapter seven, there's this word standing, standing, standing. And it's to reiterate, who can stand? Those who are in Christ, they can stand. And they will stand. When the day of judgment comes, who will be able to stand? Those who have been sealed by God will be able to stand. They are standing. They are under the altar. They are under the divine protection of God. They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They will not be shaken in the terrible day of the Lord. Who's able to stand? Those marked by God as His treasure. Those who bear His name. They are secured and sheltered from the burning wrath to come. They are the people of his covenant, the sheep of his pasture, and he will wipe finally, once and for all, every tear from their eye. What a beautiful, even if it's figurative, what a beautiful, what a beautiful thought 
for those who stand in his presence and that he would gently, even if it's figurative, that's fine. I'll take the figurative. Wipe your tear. The saints are dressed in robes of white, robes of righteousness, justified by the judge of all the earth. They're holding palm branches in their hand, which is a symbol of victory. And they're singing praises to God Almighty. John applies this imagery to all of the redeemed. In victory over our persecutors, under God's protection, in our wilderness wandering, in our wilderness pilgrimages, we have been protected by God. We will be preserved through tribulation. And listen to what we cry out, what we cry out as we close in verse 10. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation is from no one else but God. What is salvation? It's deliverance. Deliverance from sin. Deliverance from the judgment of God. Deliverance from the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. Salvation is from Him. And Him alone. He who sits on the throne and rules in wisdom and might and power. In His infinite mercy, He has decreed to save. He has saved us to the uttermost. He has saved us. He is saving us. He will save us. Brothers and sisters, your hearts have been softened so that you might come to Christ. Faith has been given so that you might believe upon Christ. Understanding has been given so that you might know Christ. Sin is being put to death so that you might be conformed to Christ. And Christ has promised that He will preserve you to the very end. That He shall protect you through life's most difficult woes. And through every tribulation, be they small or be they great, you will never be left alone. Salvation belongs to the Father. Salvation belongs to the Son. Salvation belongs to the Spirit. And there shall be a great gathering around the throne of God, along with all of the hosts of heaven. And we shall, after we stand, fall on our face and give the sevenfold blessing to our God. Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to God, our God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Saints, are you standing this morning? Are you wondering how you might be able to stand in days to come? John gives us all a great encouragement. If you want to stand, find yourself in Christ. For it is only in Christ that you will be able to stand. Let us pray.